welcome to another inspirational message from Brave Church UK. Uh, in the life of the church, we've been looking at the book of Ephesians uh, over the past few weeks now. And uh, it's been amazing to look at the first three chapters. We talked about the book of Ephesians being the first three chapters being all about the goodness of God and the work of Christ that he has accomplished, which is amazing. And now, Paul, as we begin the fourth chapter of Ephesians, he takes a turn. And now the emphasis is not just on what God's done, it's based on what now that means for us and how we should live. Uh, I want you to imagine with me this morning, imagine you've gone out for a meal, uh, maybe you're taking your loved one out for a meal, and you're going to your favorite restaurant, whatever that be, whether that be a Brazilian steakhouse or whether that be KFC. Um, you're going out for a, a great meal, and you get yourself ready, you get yourself dressed up, and you go to the restaurant. But before you've gone to the restaurant, there's some work that's gone on behind the scenes before you've got there. You know, the chef uh, has put in an order for the ingredients. That the ingredients, before you even got there to eat the meal you're about to partake in, the ingredients were ordered. They've not only ordered the ingredients, but they've taken the time to prepare those ingredients and get the meal ready for you. They've thought about how it should look on the plate. They've thought about how the different flavors should taste together. They've thought about how the meal should mix and, and how you should feel. They've thought about not only the food, but they've thought about the ambience of the atmosphere, the, the restaurant. They've thought about how to, how to um, cultivate that kind of environment in that restaurant where you could enjoy your food in a serene environment and atmosphere. Anyone else hungry this morning? They've thought about it. They've thought it all through. The waiter comes to your table and they don't expect you to go and get the food. They come and they'll ask you what you would like and you order off the menu and it's all prepared and it's all done and it's all done behind the scenes and it's presented before you. They've taken the time to take your drinks order and they brought you your drinks and you sit and you enjoy the meal. And it is a great meal. Anybody else enjoying their meal? It is a great meal. And then comes the time where the bill, all is done and the bill is ready to be paid. And they go, now this is, this is your part. All the work's already been done up to this point. All you've had to do is show up and eat. And I don't know about you, I can do that. I might not be able to cook the meal, but I can show up and eat. And you've showed up and you've eaten. And then the bill comes and you're about to put your hand into, the, into your pocket. And you realize that the bill, as it sat on your table, it says already been paid. Not only has the meal been prepared for you, not only has the the thought and detail and the attention and the plan already been executed and outworked. But now the meal that you've partaked in, the thing that you've begun to enjoy has already been paid for. What would your response be? Your response would be, first of all, result. That's awesome, free meal. But your second response, wouldn't it be gratitude? Wouldn't it be a sense of, oh, wow, this restaurant is amazing. What would be the first thing you'd do? The first thing you'd get out is your smartphone and you'd find the website of the, or the Facebook page of the, the restaurant and you'd write a review, five star. What an amazing restaurant. You'd talk about how great it was. In fact, you'd want to go around to all your friends and all your family and you want to tell them how good the restaurant that you've just eaten at and their generosity and their care and their attention and all that they've done for you. You want to tell everyone. You would become a walking, talking advertisement for that restaurant, wouldn't you? Well, here's what Paul's saying in the book of Ephesians. He spent the first three chapters talking about how God prepared a meal for you and me. 
He said it, it wasn't just a random thrown together kind of meal that, that he thought this through from the foundation of this earth that, that actually he's thought it through that the work of Christ, everything that he accomplished, God gathered the ingredients needed to deal with your and my sin. And he thought about how to cook it up. He thought about how to serve it. And he invited you to the table and he's allowed you to partake in it. And he's the one who paid the price for it. And now Paul tells us, now in light of all that, you be God's advertisement in this world. In light of all that you've had, in light of all that you've experienced, in light of all that he's done, now you live in a way that shows and shines Jesus Christ and the work of him to the world around you. That's pretty good, isn't it? What a great opportunity we get. He starts off in, in chapter four and he says this. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you, here it is, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. After everything that's been done, all the forgiveness you've received, all the peace that is yours, all the power that's within you that, that God's working out, now you, you and me, the onus is on us, now you live a life worthy of the call. Here's a question for you, a key question for you this morning. What does the advertisement of your life say? If you were to think about your life as an advert for Jesus, what would it say? And you walk, I don't know whether you, whether you walk past, drive past any billboards, where you see any ads flying up on your social media feeds, and they're advertising all kinds of stuff and saying all kinds of things to us. What would your life say? What would you say, objectively speaking, when you look at your life, what does your advertisement read? And what does it say to the world around you? Paul says that, that this is how the advertisement should read. It should be a life that is worthy of the calling that you've received. Number one in your notes. It should be one that exemplifies the character of Christ. It should be one that exemplifies the character of Christ. Now, this is a challenge. Here he says, here he goes. Are you ready? Because we've taken a shift to from, it's amazing what God's done for me, to now, this is how I should live. So just breathe, take a breath. <sighs> Get ready. Because here's what he says, verse two. He says, be completely humble. I don't know about you. Like, I, I'd, I'd cope with him saying, be occasionally humble. Now and then show humility. But he says, be completely humble. Completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Be bearing with one another in love. And make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Now, Paul realizes he's, he's, he's speaking to a church, and this is a church full of people. And here's the challenge that he says. He says, there are four things that I want you to show and shine through your life in order for you to embrace and model and advertise the, the character of Jesus. He says, one, humility. Let your life shine humility. Number two, gentleness. Number three, patience. And number four, forgiveness. Now, when Paul writes this, Paul writes this in a first century context uh, where, where Rome rules the day. 
Rome is all about, all about overpowering. Rome is all about dictating. Rome is all about ruling. And he writes to a church knowing the power of the day. And he says, this is how you're to live. And the four characteristics he gives the church aren't characteristics that are common to the culture of the day. And even when we read it today, these aren't characteristics that are common to us, are they? When we're challenged with these four things, it is a challenge. And here's what I've realized. And and I think what Paul's getting to is the only way, think about this, the only way that you and me can exemplify these four characteristics is by, by being faced with situations that would cause us to react in an opposite manner. Think about that. How do you practice humility? By being faced with a a situation where it would cause you to want to react in pride. True? How do you you handle gentleness? Any gentle people in here this morning? Any gentle men? (laughs) Wow, a couple of you. You're doing better than most of us. Gentleness. How How do you act in gentleness? When you're faced with a situation that would cause you anger and harshness to rise up in you. And then it's a choice, isn't it? To be gentle. How how do you outwork patience in your life? By being faced with a situation that would cause you to want to act rashly. How do you outwork forgiveness? By being faced with an opportunity, a situation, a challenge that would cause you to want to act in resentment. So the only way that we can embrace the character and the nature of Christ, because they're good ideas, all of us would say, oh yeah, I would love to be humble. I would love to be gentle. I would love to be patient and I would love to be forgiving. I would love those things to be in my life. And here's what God does. He puts you in a world and in a church with people and problems and issues and circumstance. And he says, now outwork it. Now outwork it. If, if, if the environment was perfect and conducive to those qualities, it would be one thing. But the environment of the world that we live in promotes the opposite, the things that are in conflict with the characteristics of the Christ, of Christ, which Paul recommends that we should embrace. Here's what John Calvin says. He says this, whence come rudeness, pride, and disdainful language towards brethren? Whence come quarrels, insults, and reproaches? Come they not from this, that everyone carries his love of himself and his regard to his own interests to excess. Anyone say, ouch? Anyone say, amen? Anyone say, well, it's everybody else? (laughs) By laying aside haughtiness and a desire of pleasing ourselves, we shall become meek and gentle and acquire that moderation of temper that will overlook and forgive many things in the conduct of our brethren. When I think about what Paul says in that we're to model the, the character and the nature of Christ, and I think about the things that are prevalent in, our, in me and in you and in the world that we live in, in terms of pride and anger and, and, and rashness and, and impatience and resentment, there are reflex in the culture that we live, True. 
Recently, uh, I know that some of you know this, uh, I've been struggling for about nine months with a bad back. And um, it's sciatic nerve, trapped nerve, and it causes pain in my back and like a numbness down my, my right leg. And um, which is why I know some of you are thinking you're growing. I am. It's not, I'm not pregnant. It's a trapped nerve. And, uh, and, and, I, and they, I've gone to the doctors about it. They sent me to physio. Now I'm waiting for an appointment with the, with the surgeon. And, um, and they sent me to the, the physio and here's, here's what they did. And they gave me no warning of this. It freaked me out. I walked into the, the physio uh, room. Some of you have been to physio know what, how it works. And they said this to me. Um, okay, I'm just going to leave for a second. You strip down to your underwear. For a start, I was like, what? I came about my back. Like, like I, 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 where have I come? Is this the physio? Yeah, it's the physio. Straight down to your underwear. We'll give you a second, this guy. And, uh, and so I was straight down to your underwear, and I'm sat there, like, awkwardly on the bed. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's, when you're down to your underwear, there's nowhere to hide. You know what I mean? So I'm trying to breathe in, but, but I, it's, it's just pointless because there's no black top that's guarding my belly at this point. It's like everything's hanging out, and everything's, oh, this is awkward. And, and he walks back in and he says, sit down on the bed. And I'm like, sit down on the bed. Now he's going to see my rolls. <laughs> you know, one thing to stand up. And he looked at my bounce, sit down on the bed. And, he, and then here's what he did. I'm sat in my underwear. Get the pin mental picture out of your head later on. Sorry if I'm scarring you this morning. But he sat me down on the, on the bed and he, and, and he said, I'm just going to test your sensitivity. <laughs> now, I don't think I've ever been described as sensitive. I'm going, to, I'm going to test your sensitivity. And here's what he did. No, no lie. I'm sat on the bed and he stroked my left leg. <laughs> and he said this question, how does it feel? <laughs> I said, very awkward. <laughs> very awkward. No, no, I mean, how, how do you feel the sensitivity? I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I can, feel, I can feel you doing that. And then he stroked my right leg and said, how does it feel? And I said, well, it's still awkward, but, but I, don't, I can't feel it as much as, you, as I did on my, my left leg. And then he stroked my left calf and my left foot. And then he stroked my right calf and my right foot. And he found that there's a different sensitivity in both legs. I thought that sums up my life. Just messed up in terms of sensitive. Too sensitive when I shouldn't be and not sensitive enough when I should be. And then he said, uh, he said, I want you to just relax your legs for a second, let them hang. And he got the hammer out. And he started to test my reflexes. And he tested the reflexes in my, in my left leg. They were fine, no problem. My knee, my foot, no problem. Did my right leg and found, found that there was a different reflex in my right leg to the reflex that was in my left leg. And as Paul's speaking to the church in Ephesians, and he talks about the, the character and the nature of Christ, humble, gentle, patient, forgiving, they aren't our reflex. What he's saying is develop a new reflex. There's a story in, in the Old Testament. We talked about this at Jason's funeral on, on Friday there's a story in the Old Testament about a man named Jacob. And this man named Jacob, his, his name means deceiver, and he's brought up in a family that's dysfunctional, and he's got all kinds of issues, and he has to run away from the dysfunction that he's created in his family. 
and, and, and literally his name means deceiver and he becomes an embodiment of that name and ends up making a mess and having to run away and there's issues and there's conflict. And then all of a sudden, God begins, begins to deal with him and calls him back to the place where the dysfunction was and the issues to resolve the issues with his family. And there's a great story in there that as he's about to face this conflict head on, and as God's doing something on the inside of him, there's a story about him wrestling all night with what turns out to be God. And as he wrestles with God, it's, it's a, a picture, an illustration to us. And for Jacob, there's a physical outside wrestling which is initiated by God. God's in the struggle. And in the process of the struggle, it's an, it's an illustration for us that this isn't just a physical struggle that's taking place on the outside. This is a struggle that's taking place on the inside of Jacob because something's got to change in him in order for him to be in the context that God's called him to return to. And in the midst of, of, of this struggle, Jacob says, in the one time that Jacob doesn't let go of something, Jacob's let go of everything all of his life. He's, he's, a, he's a professional runner. And he's at the place now where he's grabbed hold of God. He's grabbing hold of God in this process. And God says, let me go. And Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. The first time Jacob's grabbed hold of something because he knows if he lets go, he's in trouble. And in the process, he says, I won't let you go until you bless me. And here's what God does. God blesses him. He changes his name from Jacob, deceiver, to God wrestler. You have met with God face to face. What an amazing transformation. You know another blessing that God gives Jacob? A limp. A limp. Think about this. A limp becomes a blessing over his life. As they're wrestling, it says that God touches the socket of, of Jacob's hip and he puts him out of joint. For the rest of his life, from that moment on, he would walk with a limp. What does a limp represent? It limp, it limp represents for Jacob the moment that he met with God and something changed, not just on the inside, but on the outside. And the outside is a remembrance of what God did on the inside for him. And every, every day of his life as he gets up and he deals with the limp, he's realizing that something shifted in me. My reflexes have changed. So the way that I used to interact and the things that I used to give myself to are shifting. And now I give myself to, to I face God and I wrestled with him and I'm submitted to him. I'm dependent on him. I'm not having to strive for position anymore because that's what Jacob's struggle was. It, was. it was the issue of Esau and Jacob. How's that work out? I want to be the head, all that kind of stuff. And he submits and God works it out. And he submits under the leadership of God. And it's an amazing thing. God shifted something on the inside of him. I think in order for us to outwork the characteristic that Paul, characteristics of Christ that Paul speaks about, humility, gentleness, patience, and forgiveness, there's got to be a shift and there's got to be a change in our reflexes. There's got to be a shift. And I think I just get a sense... For some of us, we've been wrestling some stuff. The crazy thing is for Jacob, it's God he's wrestling with. It's God he's wrestling with. And God's doing something in the process of the struggle. So maybe there's a struggle you're facing. Maybe there's some stuff you're going through and you're saying, God, get me out of it. And God says, no, I need you in it. Because there's something in the struggle that's going to shift in you. 
And when it shifts, you'll no longer be Jacob. You'll be Israel. Changed from the inside out. So he says we've got a number one, embrace the character and the nature of Jesus. Number two, Paul says, we've got to keep the unity. He says this, verse four. He says, there is one body. There is one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of, of us all, who is over all, through all, and in all. But each one of us, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ appointed it. This is why it says he ascended, Jesus, he ascended on high and he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher so that all the heavens in order to fulfill, in order to fill the whole universe. Jesus came to earth and then went back to heaven. He descended and then he ascended. And he says, in the context of the church, there'll be many differences, but here's, here's the power of one. He says, as, as followers of Jesus, there is one body, one church. There is one spirit. He says, there is one hope. He says, there is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one baptism. Hey, if you've not been baptized, our baptisms are coming up in January. Great time to get baptized. One baptism. You made that commitment to follow Jesus. Your next step is to be baptized, to publicly declare your faith, to be washed, to be cleansed, and to be free, to embrace your God-given future. There is one baptism and one Father. He says, in everything, if everything there could be difference, I want you to understand there's oneness in so many things. And the things that there is oneness is are greater than the many lies and differences that we focus on. And he says, this is, this is how that you're to, to embrace this and understand it in the context of the body and the church. He said, understand that your father, the father in heaven, he's over it all, he's through it all, and he's in it all. What a great promise. In whatever you're walking through, that you have a God and you serve a God who's above it all. What does that mean? He's got a different perspective, yeah. But it also means he's more powerful than it. So he's over it all. Whatever you feel like is going to wash over you and cover you. Well, we serve a God who's over it all. Our greatest issues don't come close to the power of God. He's over it all. Here's what he says. He's through it all. Whatever struggle you have, he's through it all. In other words, he's walking alongside you, with you. He's not left you, he's with you, hand in hand. You're not dealing with it on your own and he's not watching from a distance, but he's with you through it all. What a beautiful promise. He's over it all, he's with us through it all and here, he's in all. Which means he's not just above it and more powerful than it. He's not just through it, alongside you with it. But he's actually outworking his purpose in you, through it all. That means he's, he's with you in all, in the good, the bad, and the ugly. He is working out, according to Paul, his purpose in you and me. 
That's encouraging, isn't it? Notice that Paul says that this is the God that we serve. And he says this, he says that you're not to create unity, you're to keep the unity. He tells us that the unity is created by the oneness of the work of God. And now you and me, we don't create it, but we keep it. How do we keep it? By focusing on the things that unite us, is what Paul says. One hope, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one God, one Father above it all. That's what we focus on. And he says in the midst of that, God's over it all. God's through it all. And God's in it all. The last thing that Paul says in the first part of chapter 4 of Ephesians. He says the way to, to make sure you're showing Jesus with the advertisement of your life. Number three is that you are journeying to maturity. That you are journeying to maturity. He says this in verse 11. He says, so Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to equip the people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. On one level, we won't fully be mature until we're in his presence in the new creation. And yet in another sense, we're constantly being made more mature, more like Christ. Paul says, here's, here's a great gift that I've given you. I've given you the gift of these, these different gifts, these leadership gifts in the life of the church in order for you to become mature. We often in church refer to these as the five-fold ministry gifts. The apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, the teacher. Actually, when you begin to study this, you realize a more accurate translation would be the fourfold ministry gift. He gives the apostle, the one who takes the message of answers the cause. He gives the prophet, the one who hears from heaven and speaks on earth. The evangelist, who, who's, a special, who's specialist in leading other people to Jesus. And number four, the pastor and the teacher go together. Paul uses two words to describe one office. They're two sides of the same coin. How does the pastor pastor the church? By teaching the church how to be more like Jesus. And by expounding the truth of God's word. In one sense, every Sunday you're being pastored. Now I know some of us come from different church contexts and backgrounds and we're like, oh well, I had a different picture of what a pastor was. And the shepherd... But this is what Paul's describing to us here. These are the gifts. In order for us to become mature, he's given these gifts, the fourfold ministry gifts to the church so that we might grow and so that we might develop. And the purpose of these gifts that are given to the church is that we might individually, me and you, might grow and become more like Jesus. It says that there are two, two evidences of you being built up and you becoming mature. Number one, service. These gifts are given to equip the saints for works of service. So these gifts aren't the ones that do all the work. They're the ones that are to equip the saints for work, for service. Interesting, isn't it? 
So these gifts facilitate and move people towards action, both in the life of the church and in the world, that you would serve God. Our prayer for you as a church is that you would discover who God's created you to be and that you would serve him. That's our prayer. So that they, you, would be, you would serve God and so that you would become mature. Mature. Now this flies in the face of our consumer culture as well, doesn't it? Because we want to come into context like this and we want everything to be given for us and done for us. But Paul tells us the gifts are given so that we might move from being receivers to givers and so that we might become more like Jesus and grow into his image. He says that, that here's, here's what happens when you become mature and when you embody the attitude and the nature and the character of Christ, when you fight for unity, here's what happens. Verse 14. He says, this is how you'll know you're mature. You will no longer be tossed. Uh, you will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by the wind, every wind of teaching and by the cunning craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, you will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament and it grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Here's what he says, the marks of maturity. And, and listen, from that scripture, movement and maturity are not the same thing. It says you can be moving you can be swept back and forth, but that doesn't mean you're maturing. You can be changing all the time, perspective and thought, and not maturing. He says, no, 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 movement and maturity aren't the same thing. He says, here's what maturity looks like. Number one, a stability in your beliefs and emotions, that you wouldn't be swung back and forth. Number two, a discernment of people. He says, watch out for people and the craftiness of their schemes, that you would discern who's pure and who's real. Number three, a mark of maturity, an ability to speak the truth, now listen to this part, in love. Now I know that, that, that some of us are truth speakers without love and some of us just want to love people but no truth. And Paul says, a mark of maturity as a Christ follower is that you would handle the two things together. That you would be a speaker of truth, but you'd be motivated by love. And that's, that's important, that both of those two come together. He says, number four, he says, you will have a commitment to the body. That you recognize you're not out on your own. You're not like a loose arm flapping around out there. You're connected to the body. It's joined together that there's closeness of connection, there's intimacy of relationship. You're not just off on a tangent doing your own thing. Paul says that's not a mark of maturity. A mark of maturity is a commitment to the body. And then he says, number five, here's another mark of maturity. You're in submission to the head, who's Jesus. Now, a lot of us like number five, but not like number four. I'll submit to Jesus, but not be part of the body. Paul says they come together. Submitted to the head, part of the body. So the, the band, if you want to come, we're going to finish up in just a moment. So the, the message that Paul has for us 
is, is this is how we're to advertise Jesus to this world. Number one, we're to show and imitate the character of Jesus as a new reflex in our lives. Number two, we're to stand, fight, and keep the unity by focusing on the oneness of what God's created in us and through us. And number three, we're to be constantly journeying towards a place of maturity. Here's what I know um, in, a, in a room like this and, and with us as, as Christ followers, as people who journey through life, we don't always get everything right. So I don't want you to leave with a sense today that if you've got something wrong, that you're failing and you're not mature. Maturity is a journey. It's a journey. In fact, one of the great, great stories I love to think about when I think about maturity and growth is the story of Abraham. Abraham's called by God. He's, and the call of God on, on Abraham's life, those of you who've been around church life, you'll know it. But those of you who haven't, Abraham's one of, one of the first people in the Scriptures who God calls and God speaks to and God promises things over. And his life and his journey is a living, breathing example for us. And when God comes to Abraham, he says, Abraham, I've got a future life for you. I've got some promises. I've got some stuff. But it's going to mean if you want to embrace these things, you're going to have to leave some stuff as well. He says to Abraham, leave behind, leave behind your land, the place you were brought up. And he says, Abraham, leave behind your family, leave them behind and go to the place I'm going to show to you. Leave it and make a journey to maturity in order to get to the place that I want you to be. The crazy thing for, for Abraham, amazing journey, amazing general of the faith. But here's the truth for Abraham. He acts in partial obedience. He leaves his land, but he takes with him a few family members. It tells us that he takes, he takes his nephew Lot along with him for the journey. He, and I think there's an element of that in each and every one of us. When God calls us from where we were to where he wants us, we so want to make that journey. But I think sometimes we take some of the stuff that we've been accustomed and comfortable to and with, with us for the journey. And the great thing with God is God's so gracious and God's so loving and God cares so much about us that sometimes he deals with the stuff that we've taken, not in rebuke, but in blessing. And here's what happens for Lot and for Abraham. It says that they journey together and their families begin to swell and grow. That looks like a blessing to me. Anybody else? So much so that there's not enough land for the two of their tribes and families. And it says they come to a point because quarreling sets in, in the midst of, of what's going on. And it says they come to a point where, where Abraham and Lot, they come together and they think they're dealing with a natural issue. The land won't sustain us. It's too big. 
but actually we know the providence of God. God's above all, through all, and in all. And he's leading them to a place, the place that he initially called Abraham to, of separation, that he was to leave everything behind and step into his God-given future. And it comes to a point where they separate and, and Abraham says to Lot, you choose which way you'll go. And Lot chooses. And Abraham goes his own way. And it tells us directly after that in the scriptures, it tells us that God comes to Abraham and he speaks to him. And this is what he says. He says this in Genesis chapter 13, verse 14. It says, And the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are. Look northward, look southward, look eastward, look westward. For all the land which you see, I will give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. So that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I will give it to you. Abraham, downcast with his head low, because he knows that God's orchestrated this thing and he's finally got to let go of the things that he's been carrying, trying to carry into his God-given future. And he says to, he says to, says to Lot, we're going our own ways. And God then comes to Abraham and says, don't be downcast. I don't know, maybe Abraham's reflecting on his disobedience. Maybe Abraham's looking inward and maybe Abraham's just feeling down because he realizes that he's made this thing. He's caused this thing. And then God says to Abraham, lift up your head. Look to me. Look to the north. Look to the south. Look to the east. Look to the west. Because I've still got a great plan for your life. I was going to sense that some of us maybe as we're on the journey towards maturity... Maybe you've got some regrets. Maybe you've got some things that you wish had gone differently and you'd done differently. And I feel like God wants to say this morning, look up. Look up. Don't go into your God-given future with your head still down. It's time to look up. It's time to get your eyes up. It's time to see what God's got before you, the length and the breadth of all that God's got for you. Because what's ahead of you is greater than any mistake that's behind you because of God's grace and his love and his compassion to us. Why don't we stand to our feet? We're going to get a great opportunity right now. That's the end of this week's podcast. We hope that it inspired you. For any more information, visit braidchurch.co.uk.